Well, good morning. My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here at Bethel Downtown. We're delighted that you're here. I want to start off this morning um, a little bit atypically. Wanted to uh, invite us all to pray together, to come in agreement and play, pray for what is going on in our world, specifically in the Middle East. Um, we have no solutions. It's not a quick and easy and obvious thing. It's complicated. It's complex. But it's, it's very serious, and it's grievous to many of us who have uh, friends and colleagues over there right now dealing with um, all of the conflict, all of the fear, uncertainty, doubt, all those things. So I'm just going to invite you to pray with me, and we're going to ask uh, that the Lord would hear our hearts and do what only He can do. So let's pray. Father, you are so much more aware of all the things that are going on, what's been reported or not reported, or we don't know, but you know all things. And you are all-powerful, and you are good. And so just that truth, Father, we claim and we confess that it's uh, grievous, it's frightening, it's uh, very, very sad, the amount of uh, casualties that have occurred, all of the geopolitical intrigue, this, that, and the other, and yet you are not surprised, you were not caught off guard. And so for our part, would you give us wisdom? Would you give us the conviction to continue to pray for peace? We know that you have already done uh, so much in Christ. You've sent your son, you've sent your spirit, now you send your people. And so, Father, we do pray for whatever way for there to be a de-escalation. I don't understand how that can happen, but you are sovereign, you know all things, and you are good. And so we trust you. We pray all these things, Father, in the power of your Spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we are continuing on in our sermon series on the book of 1 Corinthians, and so I'm delighted that you're here. We've got a, a fun passage to tackle and address this morning, and it has to do with church. So it's, it's good to be reminded occasionally, welcome to church. What are we doing at church? What are we actually supposed to be about? How do we actually execute the whole thing of being a church. Well, for that, we kind of have to understand what a church actually is. Now, praise God, we don't have to guess or speculate or wonder. We've been given quite a lot of biblical text that is very, very specific, that is very, very detailed. Let me start off this morning by going to a passage not in 1 Corinthians. It's actually in the book of Ephesians. Whereas 1 Corinthians deals with how to actually operate the local church the book of Ephesians is dealing with how do we actually conduct the church universal. Now, in Ephesians, in the very first chapter, Paul tells us something rather remarkable about what the church is. So in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 to 10, Paul says this, In him, that's in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. This is how much God wants to forgive and love us is according to his glory and goodness and grace. That's how much of our sin he forgives, which is important because there's a lot there to deal with. Which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. This thing that was sort of veiled and cloudy and not real clear in the Old Testament now has been made completely clear according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Now, Ephesians 1.10 is one of these super central verses. This is how the ESV translates it. As a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. I love the ESV, 
but boo ESV, not so much. They punted on this verse because it's so strikingly and shockingly direct. It sort of reveals the publisher's theology and doctrinal position. It is with a view to an administration such that all things will be summed up in Christ. And that word summed up here just says to unite. No, no, no. It's to be headed, to be headed by Christ. So the, the church, he says, is a preview of a coming attraction. The church is a microcosm. It is a, a, a portal. It is a lens. It is a well, we might say it's a colony. One day, Christ will literally be the head of all things. Paul uses this word that's found nowhere else in the New Testament, to be the head of all things. The church is a beachhead. The church is a sort of a, an installation, a preview of that coming attraction of the kingdom. That word plan is actually hoikonomia. It's the idea of, a, of an economy, an administration. The old King James would call it a dispensation. That's what the church is. It is to be a foretaste of what the coming kingdom will actually be about. So whatever you and I and the rest of the world might think about the church, God's given us a very clear manifesto for us to understand and to follow, for us to cultivate and for us to curate. Now, there are centuries and seasons, of course, where the church gets it very, very wrong, but we have the opportunity to know God's word by his spirit as his people, and when we do, to appreciate and operate the church according to his directive. And so that sets us up for our big idea this morning from 1 Corinthians 5, and it goes like this. The church is a colony of the kingdom. Whatever else you might think, the church is a colony of the kingdom. A colony is an establishment of the sending empire, a beachhead to prepare the way. Now, they were familiar with this in ancient times because Rome had established colonies all over the empire. Philippi was a Roman colony. Thessalonica was a Roman colony. And of course, Corinth was a Roman colony. It was Rome there in that context. And they didn't want people to leave Philippi and go to Rome. They wanted you to be a colonist, to be a, an instance, an installation of Rome in that setting. So the church is a colony of the kingdom. With all that said, let's open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Now I'm going to read all the way through this, and then we're going to unpack it briefly, and we'll see if we can apply it. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Apostle Paul writes, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you 
not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality, of greed, or as an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil from among you. This is God's word. Now, last week, a couple of you came up and said, hey, we know what's coming. We've read the Bible. We know that chapter five and chapter six has some wordy dirds in there. Are you gonna be rated G? You're gonna be rated PG. You're gonna go PG-13. And I said, thanks for not assuming I'd go full on NC-17. I respect that. Because they also knew that I just might. No, and I said, listen, in this text, we're gonna sort of skip across and we're gonna attack the actual intent of the passage. Today, about 98% is gonna be rated G, about 2% rated PG. Next week, bring your popcorn, it's chapter six. And I've just gotta read the text. And just reading the text, that's about 40% is PG. I'll try to be 60% rated G, but bring your kids. We like having your kids here. We want kids to worship with their families. But there are some hard things that we've got to discuss in the text. So remember, the first six chapters of 1 Corinthians are all about, hmm, they are rebukes, corrections to errant behavior operationally in this colony. You're a colony of the kingdom, and you're, you're behaving like you're no longer colonizers, but you are. So there's rebukes for six chapters. Starting in chapter seven, we get all these responses. He'll say again and again and again and again, now concerning the thing, now concerning the stuff, now concerning the stuff. But we're still in the rebuke section, and so, yeah, we have to address this. He says, the ESV translates it, it's actually reported. Well, that's a good translation, but more accurately, it would probably be something like, it's reported that there is actually sexual immorality among you. Like, he can't believe it. Not that it's sin, it is. Not that it's not a big deal, it is. But you get the intent from, you get the idea from Paul's expression that he just can't believe that that kind of a thing would, would be happening in that context. It is behavior and conduct so unbefitting a colonist. Like, I can't, I can't even believe it. It's, it's, a, it's a NASA astronaut operating a space shuttle, a jackhammer in the space shuttle. What are you, what are you doing? You're not going to survive if you do that. Stop that. Stop that right now. He can't believe that that's actually happening. He says, it is reported, it's actually reported that there's actual sexual morality. And yes, we can't get around it. That word there is porneia. It happens again and again in this chapter and in the next. And it just has to do with sexual immorality. It's indecency. It is that which is outside of God's plan, purview, and purpose for sexual relations. It's among you. And a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans Oof, so what's going on here? Well, he can't believe that this is happening. Not even the ancient Greco-Roman world would tolerate this kind of thing. The Roman philosopher Cicero actually wrote against this kind of behavior. What's going on? Well, apparently a male member of the congregation at first Corinth, <laughs> his father had either died at best or was divorced at worst, and his second wife, was now available, and so this male member of the congregation decides to have a relationship with his stepmom. Now, just in case you're wondering, this thing is explicitly and expressly forbidden already in Scripture, all right? Leviticus 18.8, Deuteronomy 22.22, you can't do that. It's indecent. Not even the pagans would do that. And so Paul hears about this, and he's like, whoa! I mean, I don't know if you remember back in the day when maybe some of you who were old enough, when you had a toddler and you open the door, and you find your toddler sitting on the floor eating something that would make a billy goat puke, and you're like, what are you doing? 
You're just horrified. Or perhaps more seriously, as your child was in adolescence and they were engaged in some behavior that was dangerous and dark, and it stunned you and it shocked you. This is how Paul feels about this. Not even the ancient secular pagan world would be a part of something like that. And what's interesting is Paul says, and you are arrogant. It's fascinating. He doesn't go after the dude individually. That's obvious. He actually goes after the congregation. He goes after the colonists for allowing it and for endorsing it. That's really interesting. And you are arrogant. Ought not you rather to mourn? You should be grieved over this. You should be heart-stricken. You should be totally devastated about this. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. We'll talk about why they were boastful when we get on to chapter six. But he says that this offender is to be removed. Apparently, the woman involved was not a member of the church because he doesn't address her at all. She's probably an outsider, we'll find out later on. He's addressing the congregation about their error as colonists, not just talking about the individual sin. So right away, I want you to understand this passage, as icky and tricky as it gets, is not really principally about sexual immorality. It's about the church as a colony of the kingdom operating as if it really were. Verse three, for though absent in body, I am present in spirit. Now this has been misinterpreted, misapplied for centuries. Paul's not doing transcendental meditation. He's sitting in Ephesus when he writes this. He doesn't actually just teleport to, from Ephesus to Corinth. He doesn't show up like some dead glowing Jedi. No, no, no. He, in spirit means his teachings, his, his writings that he left behind, all of the stuff that he had taught them is there. That's his spirit. That's his essence. We have the spirit, the essence of the apostles in scripture, what they wrote. And Ephesians chapter four says that the church is built on the writings and the teachings of the apostles. So in a sense, they are with us in spirit as well. For though I absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Paul doesn't wait to say, well, you know, there's two sides to every story. Maybe there was a, no, there's no excuse for this. That's not okay. That kind of behavior cannot continue. We're not going to tolerate this because we're colonists. Ancient Israel had been given the very clear mandate repeatedly. You are the covenant community. You are a preview of the coming kingdom, Israel. Don't do this. Now, why did God have to say it to them over and over and over again? Because apparently they were trying it, and it was gross, and it was foul, and the rest of the nations around them were going, ew, ew, ew. Yet again, the church begins to try to absorb the culture, and they get infected. They get influenced. They get impacted by their surroundings. Paul says, this sort of thing will not do. He says, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. There's not two sides to this story. If this is true, and it was, then this is, this is wrong. You've got to take action on this right now. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. Now that term, when you are assembled, it's really fascinating. It's a technical term. It has to do with the formal corporate gathering on the Lord's day of the church. Now make it a big deal about that because it's the same exact verbiage that Paul will use in chapter 11 when he says, when you are assembled, when you meet together formally, when you gather for worship as the church on the Lord's day, which by the way, proclaims that Jesus is alive. That's why we do church on Sunday mornings. Not just because you don't happen to be working that day. No, we are proclaiming that Jesus is alive. And when we assemble, Paul says in chapter 11, we'll get there one of these days. 
You are to take communion. You are to do the Lord's Supper. That's how we know also here in this passage, when you are assembled, meaning the next Lord's Day, as soon as I get this letter, the next time you come together, here's what I want you to do. In the name of the Lord Jesus, it is his church, it is his colony, it is his kingdom that has begun and that is coming fully. When the God-man will literally, legally, and logistically reign from Jerusalem, he gets to make the rules. And so you do this in his name, not just because you're trying to like, you know, be harsh or be legalistic or Pharisee. No, no, no. You do this in the name of the king and in the power of the king. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, the truths of scripture that Paul has left behind with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are, and this is an unpopular passage in our day and age, the 21st century, when we're all about tolerance, we're all about grace and mercy. No, Paul says, you are to deliver this man to Satan, woof, to the enemy. Why? For the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Wow. You are to deliver this guy over so that he will be saved. Now, there's a couple different interpretations on this. It's the, the word for the flesh is sarkos. And that could mean the body. You're to deliver him over so that he'll literally physically die and then he'll be saved. That's pretty rough. Or it could mean so that his actual sin nature, the sarcos could be the flesh, the old sin nature, so that that will be afflicted and oppressed and he will be driven to repentance. That's also possible. It's possible that it's both. More than likely, it's the second interpretation that this is about his sin nature being so afflicted. Kick him out of the church. Now, I know what you're thinking. Kick me out of the church. Knock yourself out. There's a thousand other churches in Smith County. I'll go to any of them or all of them. Try me. Not back then. There was first Corinth and that was it. And if you got kicked out of the church, that meant you were outside of the colony confines. You were no longer under the protection of Christ. And you were already publicly identified as a Christian. You were baptized in public. The whole town knew that you were one of them. And yet you've been ostracized. You've been kicked out. You've been excommunicated. You were open season on your head, open for persecution and harm. Now, is that harsh? Yes. Is it what God wants? Yes, because so much is at stake to defile the name of the king, to defile the name of Christ. That colony must remain pure. So he says, deliver him over. That's pretty harsh. That's discipline at its finest. Verse five, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. It's harsh, but we say this all the time around here. We'll say it again. There are worse things than death there are better things than human flourishing. Do you understand that? We, we all have to understand that and live like that was actually true. There are worse things than death. There are better things than human flourishing. This guy's salvation, his justification, being declared righteous ultimately by God is not at all in question, but his besetting sin, this thing that is creeping in that the church is affirming and tolerating and even endorsing is not okay so that he'll be saved. Verse six, now we get the explanation. Your boasting is not good. They were proud of it. The church is about four years old by this point. And they were going around saying, hey, listen, we're under grace, baby. All things are permissible. They were taking that Corinthian slogan. We'll find out later in this book. They were saying, all things are permissible. We're under grace. It's fine that this guy's doing that. No problem. It's all okay. Look at us. Anything goes. Y'all come and Paul says, that is absolutely not okay. You have lost the mandate and the manifesto 
of this colony called the church. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Now, what's he doing? He's appealing to Scripture. He's talking about the festival of unleavened bread from Exodus 12 and 13. You might remember the story back in Exodus. The, the, the Passover was going to happen, and in preparation for Passover, they had to hurriedly, because the angel of death was about to come, they had to hurriedly get all of the leaven, all of the yeast, which was representative of sin, out of the house as fast as they could. And they would slaughter the lamb, and they'd put the blood over the doorpost, and they had to do this in a hurry. It was a rush. It was time to go. Paul says, time is of the essence. Do not negotiate with this sin. You might say it this way, don't sign a peace treaty with your sin. Paul says, we are the colony of the kingdom. We must get all of the leaven that is a little bit of leaven, a little bit of bacteria, a little bit of virus infects the entire body. And so he's using this imagery. This little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. I say this all the time. This is why I stay lumpy, just because Scripture tells me to. It's, just, it's a scriptural mandate, you see? That you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Don't you see who God's already made you? Now, just in case we misunderstand and stop reading there, and just in case we think, oh, it's our responsibility to atone for sin. It's our responsibility to get rid of our sin. No, a super important corrective Paul issues. He says, as you really are unleavened for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. He is the one that did the thing. And since he did, since he bought for himself a particular priestly people, we are to operate the church, this colony, as if that were really the case. He did the thing. Now we are to live as if he really did. He is the one who was sacrificed. Our Passover lamb. And so this is what he says. This is so beautiful. Let us therefore celebrate the festival. See, communion's a really big deal. Taking the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, the Eucharist together is a really big deal. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, not the way we used to do it annually, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, you would almost expect there to be the unleavened bread of holiness and purity. He doesn't say that. He says of sincerity and truth. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But the idea that there needs to be truth as a part of communion tells us that there was a lie that was going along in the church that that kind of behavior was okay. No big deal. Oh, let's get over it. Let's not be too pharisaical or legalistic or moralistic about it. Paul says, no, we take the communion in sincerity and in truth. And in a sense, all of the Christian life is Passover. I don't know a whole lot of Christians that think of that properly, but all, the entirety of the Christian life and existence and experience is Passover. In view of what our Passover lamb, Christ, has done, there is always blood, in a manner of speaking, over the doorpost. We've already been passed over in all of our life. Every breath we inhale is a celebration that I am alive. I don't deserve to be. I have been judged already at the cross. My Passover lamb, I am loved. I am seen. He is for me. All of the Christian life and experience is passed over. Not once a year. Every single moment, every single breath, thought, word, and deed exists in the context of Passover. 
Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. This is one of the reasons we know that this first Corinthians is actually the second letter that he sent them. He wrote them a letter previously that they misunderstood. And so they come back with a whole lot of questions. I wrote you earlier, he says in verse nine, not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. They were trying to close themselves off in a sense. And they were saying, Paul, what, you mean we can't associate with the sexually immoral of Corinth? And Paul says, no, if, if that was the case, you'd have to start a new colony on Mars. It's not gonna work. Not meaning at all the people of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters. All of these people who were, he'd already written about this, starting to infect the church. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. I'm not talking about creating some separatist commune, you would have to leave the entire planet. I'm not saying that. And he gets very, very clear, verse 11. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or a swindler. All of these things we are calling besetting sins, these systemic pattern sins. To be very clear and careful here, Paul's not saying that if you've ever sinned, you can't come to church. Or if you're in sin right now, you can't come to church. Because the church would be a very lonely and empty place and there would be nobody to preach. Let me just tell you that right now. He's not saying if you've ever sinned or if you have sin thoughts or words. No, no, no. These besetting sins that are open and obvious, that are not hidden, that people realize, oh, that guy's a drunk. He's a swindler. He's a cheat. He's an idolater. He's sexually immoral. And open about it. Don't associate with that person because it blemishes the name of Christ and the colony of Christ. Or idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Now, this is not saying that you can't go to Bucky's and have nuggets with that person. It's not saying that. In fact, you should, and you should lead them and love them to repentance. This has to do with communion. Do not enjoy the Lord's Supper, the, the Eucharist, the, the Lord's table with such a person if they are open about it and saying, hey, I can do whatever I want. I'm under grace. No, 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 that is not okay. Don't even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Paul said, that's not my point. I'm not here to, to address all of the ills of the world. I'm talking about you, colony, you, congregation, you, church. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? You've got to tend to your house. You've got to make sure that that colony stays clean. Verse 13, God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. And then Paul, as he tends to do, he quotes Deuteronomy 17, 17. Purge the evil. Because now, church, it's not Israel. You in this age, in this administration, in this time, in this era, you are the colony of the kingdom. Purge the evil from among you. Not that you atone for your sin. Christ has already done that. Now live as though you were an established beachhead, a colony of his coming kingdom. The church is a colony of the kingdom. We have to curate and cultivate that kingdom colony. So let me give some, take away some practical principles. I'm gonna give five from this short chapter, just 13 verses, but I wanna give five practical, portable principles hopefully that will rattle around at least some of them in our minds and our souls and even in our corporate gatherings together. Number one goes like this. Do not condone what God condemns. We all do it. We all explain it away. We all justify it. 
For thousands and thousands of years, the people of God have had a sad history of trying to make God user-friendly and negotiate with him regarding what is really holy because of our context or our culture. But God is holy, holy, holy. He knows what he demands. We don't always. Our sin is that we want to be God. We want to declare things righteous that aren't. Oh, it's okay. The lie earlier that I mentioned is always bouncing around either in our individual mind or even in our corporate gatherings. Oh, God won't mind. God doesn't notice. God doesn't care. It's not that big of a deal. That is a lie. When that lie begins to bounce around in your own soul, in your own mind, in your own midst of your family, I want to remind you of a beaten, bloodied, naked Christ, shamed on the cross. And then you tell me that God doesn't mind. He minds. There is no victimless crime. There is no victimless sin. Consider the cross of Christ. All that God poured out on his own beloved son, when you hear that lie, rebuke it out loud if need be. We don't get to declare things are righteous when God has said they are not. This is essentially half the book of Leviticus. I know that's where we usually start our read through the Bible in a year praying. It gets to February, you hit Leviticus, deuces, I'm out. I got it. Read Leviticus. What's the theme of Leviticus? Do not call holy what God has called unclean. Again, don't sign a peace treaty with your sin. It's the age-old attempt for the person of faith to say, oh, come on, times have changed. No big deal, perhaps. But God has not changed. And his expectations for us have not changed. He has established a colony for his kingdom. And when he returns to reign in majesty, there will be no negotiations whatsoever. And so in his church, there's not now. Do not condone what God condemns. Number two, worship is warfare. Maybe you don't think of it that way, but perhaps we should. Worship is warfare. When we gather together, when we are in the assembly, we provide protection to one another. Did you see that? Cast that one out. He's outside the fellowship. He's outside the, the confines of the colony. He's easy to be picked off. But when we gather together on behalf of God, we agree with one another about what is true and we encourage one another to lay aside what is false. We really can't make a big enough deal about having church and coming to church. This is why we do what we do. We proclaim who God is, what he is like, what he has done and who we therefore are. This is what we do in our expression here. We confess our sin aloud and together, thereby certifying our desperate need of a savior. Maybe sometimes you say our confession. Maybe sometimes you mean it. Maybe sometimes you don't. I don't know. But I want that to be our expression that we are desperate for a savior because we are all fallen and yet loved and redeemed. We hear an assurance of the gospel work completed by Christ our King. And I love hearing our assurance. I need to be reminded and refreshed of the gospel. We take communion together and we feast on his finished work of giving us his perfect life and righteousness and taking away our prolific sin and shame and death. And then we sing the doxology to the glory of our God and we hear him speak to us through his inspired and inerrant and infallible word. This 
is what pushes back the slings and arrows of our enemy. We don't need to go around rebuking spirits or looking for demons under every shrub. We just love one another actively and intentionally and surprisingly. We say it all the time. Just gorilla love somebody. Gorilla bless somebody in our midst. They'll never see it coming. Just, just do, give them a gift card. Just whatever it is. That's warfare. We simply go to church because the church is a colony of the kingdom. My prayer this whole week in preparation is that Bethel downtown would regather the centrality of church life at the same level that Paul was calling the believers in Corinth to do. So much is at stake. Number three, discipline is discipleship. Discipline is discipleship. Nobody wants to preach or teach about church discipline. Oh my gosh. But it's a part of what we do as we lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. It matters. It's perhaps the most unpopular or unpalatable matters that we can get discuss in church or get, we get, as church leadership get to address, but it's very central. And we have had instances. We are in the middle of some instances and we'll always be prepared to do so if necessary. Again, because so much is at stake. But the goal and objective of church discipline is always restoration. It is not punishment or shame ever. They weren't trying to shame this dude. They all already knew and were high-fiving him about it. No, no, it's never for shame or, or to make a spectacle. It is always for restoration. We're not trying to just make people think about what they've done. We're trying to assist people in hearing the Spirit, remind them of whose they are and who they are. Incidentally, this even applies to our households as we engage in our spouse relationships with our children, perhaps even our parents, our siblings, restoration. Am I just wanting some consequence? Am I trying to extract a pound of flesh? Or am I actually seeking betterment? Am I actually seeking sanctification and holiness and a pattern of wellness as I interact with my kids, with my neighbors, with my coworkers, even Mike? Yeah, we're always working towards those kinds of issues. We are not merely Life forms full of chemicals and electrical impulses. My God, my God, he has not forsaken us. We are people created in God's image, marred and corrupted by sin, but rescued and redeemed by that same creator God who became our filth and he died to remove it from us. Wow. And so this is how we lead people to follow our example as people who get that and who glory in that so much so that it changes everything about our walking around life. Number four, be who God says you already are. That's the thrust of the whole chapter, chapter five. What are you doing, Corinthians? Don't you know who you are, whose you are? Be who you already are. Be who God says you already are. You are unleavened bread, he says. That's amazing that he calls them that. You know who else is called unleavened bread? Jesus. And Paul calls the church. It's incredible. It's the other half of the book of Leviticus. First, God says, do not call holy what God has called unclean. The other half is, do not call unclean what God has called holy. He's called you holy. You don't get to take a downgrade in your eternal reality. You are made in the image of God. You resemble, you reflect Jesus. He'll say in his fourth letter, we call 2 Corinthians the more you behold him, the more you are ever increasingly transformed to look like him. You don't get to behave as though you're not a colonist. You are. Not of your own doing, incidentally. You are saints by calling. 
called the church to communion, not with the Old Testament Jewish festival of unleavened bread, but a weekly gathering or assembly on the Lord's Day, Sunday, as those who are sincere and, again, true. What is truth? Pilate asks Jesus. Truth is that which coincides with God's view of reality. Can I say that again? Because I will. Truth is that which coincides with God's view of reality. If you don't agree with God, you're wrong. I'm yelling. So don't listen to the lie that he doesn't know, that he doesn't care, that he won't mind, that it doesn't matter. Look at the cross. And then he says that we would do this with sincerity. Now, I love this word. It only happens about three or four times in the New Testament. Sincerity. It's heliocrine. That's the Greek. And in Latin, it was sincere. means without wax. So do this without wax. You got it? You got it. You got it. What was happening? Paul's using a very fun word. In the marketplace, if a potter was to fire a vase or some sort of pot, and he did it too quickly because he was a swindler, the pot would fire too quickly. It was cheaply made. He would have to glaze over it and put wax in the cracks and then paint over it. But the discerning buyer would feel that, hmm, something's not right here. And he would hold that pot up to the sun and the sunlight would shine through and you could see that there was wax in the cracks. Paul says, we are the colony of the kingdom of Christ. No wax in our cracks. Just gonna let that linger for a moment. That's how we come to the table together. Shoulder to shoulder, soul to soul, and the space between each of us is holy ground. We reject the things that are not true. We are sincere. We are sun-tested because Jesus, don't you see? Jesus was sun-tested. The Father looked at him and said, every thought, word, and deed has been pure, and now you become their sin and shame and filth so that we would never have to experience that. God has given us Christ, his life, his righteousness in thought, word, and deed, completely true, utterly sincere. Since that is how God decides to see us, we get the opportunity and the capacity by his indwelling spirit to be who he says we already are. This life is therefore joy. The church is a colony of the kingdom. Why? Because don't you see the first colony of the kingdom was actually Jesus? It's him. It's a person. It's not a place. It's not a procedure. Not a plan. Not a policy. It's a person. And now we get to be his presence in the world. So the fifth point. This is probably somewhat familiar, but we're going to spend a little bit of time here. We are in the world, but not of the world. I know, I suspect probably we've heard this at least a bit. Not a new expression for a lot of us. It's a high degree of likelihood. You've heard it before in church or somewhere similar, but let me address and emphasize the second half of the principle first, not of the world. This is from Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, but now let me flip to the apostle John and his epistle, 1 John chapter 2. John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Why would you hitch your wagon to a system that is going away? It is decaying. It is fading away. A little later in the same epistle, he says this. We know, 1 John 5, 19, that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We're from God. This colony of the kingdom established in this whole realm of darkness 
And so our essence is ultimately future and foreign. Our ethic and our aesthetic comes from the throne of God, not the enemy. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. Maybe familiar to us, but it bears repeating and refreshing again and again. More and more in our culture, in our context, the communities of the church are under opposition in their communities. And Christians are beginning to react in multiple unhealthy ways. I don't want to beat this drum too much, but a couple of years ago, right before COVID, a well-known Christian speaker and author, a guy named Rod Dreher, came to Tyler to speak about a book that he had published. It's called The Benedictine Option. And in his book, he essentially says, hey, Christians, we've lost the culture war. So stop fighting. We've lost. Give it up. Instead, we need to be like the Benedictines of the 21st century. We need to create cordoned off separate communes completely and not engage with our world whatsoever. And let me just tell you, he spoke right over there. I could not more violently and vehemently disagree biblically. We, the colony of the kingdom, are those people who articulate the gospel, even if people don't want to hear it. At some point, we pray that God would do for them what he has done for us. And as the spirit of God summons them, that we are ready to articulate in spirit and truth, in grace and love, the gospel. But if we cordon off and become our own little modern-day branch Davidians, dare I say, that is not Christ's intent. Look at Jesus. He ate with sinners. He ate with prostitutes. He even ate with IRS agents. Blah. John 17, as Jesus is praying for us. Listen to how Jesus prays to his Father. But now I am coming to you, Father, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus wants us to have joy where we are. I have given them your word as the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. No, no, no. But that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. What's true of our king becomes true of his colony, the church. Think rightly about who we are and whose we are. Without access to the truth of God, rightly divided and dispensed from the church, most people won't, around won't have access to the gospel. I remember my old professor, Howard Hendricks, Prof. Hendricks, later in his life he had an eye patch, so it really sort of accentuated what he'd say. Every Christian should own an ashtray. Your drapes aren't worth more than their everlasting souls. You ought to know at least five people that'll come over and use your ashtray. Yes, sir. So I went and I got myself an ashtray. Everybody should have access to your Jesus. Your drapes are not worth as much as their everlasting souls. He said, you ought to have at least five people that you know do not know Jesus. You spend time praying for them. You spend time engaging with them, showing them kindness, blessing them, giving the gospel at every opportunity. The church is a colony of the kingdom. Jesus is the book of Leviticus. Did you know that? He took what was unclean and he made it holy. He took what was holy himself and became that which is unclean. He took it to the cross and with it, he died. And he established this colony. The church matters. Thank you for gathering in worship. 
Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for this text. It's challenging. But I pray, God, that you will continue to use it by your spirit, that you will edify and equip and encourage this, your people. Father, if there's anyone here this morning that does not know you, that is outside, I pray that you will move irresistibly by your spirit and lead them into a saving knowledge of your son, Jesus. They would be persuaded that Jesus is the Christ, that he takes away their sin and imputes them with righteousness. And even if they don't understand all those churchy words, that they would be persuaded to talk with someone they know or love or trust about that. And they would move out of death into life. And they would begin a life inside your colony, the church. For the rest of us, Father, would you remind us of the centrality, of the significance of your church? We would live for and with one another. God, thanks for loving us. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.